Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. And good morning. Great to be with you this morning on our fall kickoff Sunday. Uh, we had a great service at 9 o'clock and an open house in between for our brand new stuff we have for kids uh, here at the 11 o'clock hour. Uh, it's just good to have our legs back under us a little bit and be heading into the fall. Um, when I was a kid, what, long ago, I won't tell you how long ago, um, an incredible movie was released, a classic, The Princess Bride. Now, is this too, like, I don't, I, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on who knows about what these days. Um, a few weeks ago, you know, they had the Field of Dreams game, the Major League game, and I mentioned it to a baseball player who had never watched the Field of Dreams. Um, so I don't know if I'm in touch or out of touch, but you've seen The Princess Bride? Most, okay, if not, that's your homework today. But just, you know, 30 years ago plus, they released this movie. It's this fantastic fantasy tale. Incredible characters. Prince Humperdinck, Buttercup, Wesley, Count Rugen, and this motley crew of Fezzik, Inigo Montoya, and their boss, Vizzini. Uh, Vizzini, he's really fun because he has all these schemes and ideas, and they never come to fruition. And whenever his schemes are foiled, he just yells out, inconceivable, all the time. And eventually, his compatriot, Inigo uh, Montoya, turns to him, he yells, inconceivable, and he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> and it's this incredible, you know, memorable, memeable line. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And I bring that up because in my mind, I was reading this passage from James 2. And it's all about faith and works, but especially he's, he's using the word faith throughout. And I just, in my head, imagine Martin Luther. You know Martin Luther, the great reformer? You know, hundreds of years ago, this monk who, who kind of led and kicked off the Protestant Reformation uh, based on the idea of faith, faith alone and Christ alone. I just imagine him reading James and James is using faith, and he just goes, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. Um, he actually once he called the book of James a right strawy epistle, which apparently is like a hundred-year-old burn. You can burn someone by calling it a right strawy um, epistle. Um, but I bring all that up because I think it's a, it's a conversation worth uh, leaning into. Uh, there's been this uh, really a conversation for, what, 500 years in the church of the relationship between faith and works and how that plays out. And so I want to look at that today as we go through James chapter 2. Um, but I, I don't want us to strictly think of ourselves in like a theology classroom. Uh, because James is uh, first and foremost a pastor. Um, he led the church in Jerusalem. And he's writing, uh, he's this holy man, he's a godly leader, and he writes this kind of one-of-a-kind letter as a committed pastor. Um, his goal is for God's redeemed people uh, to grow, uh, to grow in holiness and to grow in Christian maturity. So that's the aim of this uh, letter, the book of James. The first thing he's concerned with is false faith. Let's look at verses uh, 1 through 13. Um, and I want to give you a little context for James chapter 1, because James 1 has to go with James 2, and then you get a little more of an idea of what's happening. Um, here's what he's already said in James chapter 1. First, 
that we, you and me, are loved by a good and generous God. He calls him the father of lights who sends down every good gift from above. And he immediately just has this idea that our posture is one of reception. Um, that we receive what God, our good and generous God, uh, sends down for us. James chapter 1, verse 18. He writes, Of his own will, God, out of sheer grace, brought us forth by the word of truth. Why? That we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. There's this new birth that has occurred. Um, this new creation that is dawning. And James is writing about that. Uh, that God Almighty has done something in us and for us that we can never do for ourselves. And actually, James 2 tells us that God is doing stuff in us and through us um, for the good of our neighbor, for the sake of the world. That's how the logic of the book of James works. It's foundational for him, for all the New Testament. In terms of our salvation, this idea of reception, he says we are to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. God has planted the seed of the gospel of faith into our lives. And James wants us to, to see that blossom and grow and flourish and bear fruit for our own good and for the good of our neighbors and the world around us. The salvation has been brought about by the power and love and favor and grace of God. And so now James, after laying that foundation in chapter 1, uh, understanding that says, now let's move forward and talk about holiness and godly living. Uh, that brings glory to the Lord. And it's actually for our own good that God wants to work in and through us. Um, you see, James sees saving faith as making a difference in our lives. That God meets us where we are. He receives us where we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. By the Holy Spirit, God is doing something. He's doing something in us. He's doing something through us. Um, he's growing us in holiness. And traditionally, uh, theologians have used uh, this language. It's just kind of awkward, clunky, but they've talked about this in terms of justification and sanctification to differentiate kind of what's going on here, uh, that we're justified, declared righteous by faith. Um, and I think it's, it's clear to always say when we're declared righteous by faith, that's not just like a feel-good feeling. You know how you'll say like, oh, it's so nice that you have faith. And we somehow equate faith with like optimism or tenacity, uh, but faith has an object. And in the scriptures, the object of our faith is God. The object of our faith is Jesus. Um, we, we trust in the gospel. James is very, very clear on that. Um, and we're justified by faith. And the sanctification is growing in holiness, growing in maturity. And again, this is not something that we grit our teeth and do on our own, but it's a work that God is doing in us by his Holy Spirit. Um, and by the way, that process of growing in holiness and maturity, um, I probably don't have to tell you this, but it's not always straight or linear. <laughs> um, it's often three steps forward, two steps back. Um, it, it often might look different in different people's lives. Uh, we don't know how long this process takes. We don't know where people are in this process even, where they might have come from and what God is doing in them now and what he's going to do in their lives and the future, but the scripture is clear that God is doing this work. Um, and actually, we can trust that God himself will bring it uh, to its perfect and good uh, finish line. He's growing us in holiness. Romans 8 says he's conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus. 
That's God's will for our lives. I I don't know. Sometimes folks ask me, what do you think God's will for my life is? I'm like, well, he tells us in Romans 8. um, God's will for everybody is that they're conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Now, if you want to talk about your specific vocational calling, that's a different discerning question we can do. But God's will for us is to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. And there's this process of sanctification um, that's taking place here. All right, well, how do we know if we're growing in this process? How how do we know if God's doing this work in us? Well, James is very practical. So he says, well, let's talk about a couple test cases uh, to see if what should be happening is actually happening. Um, And he, he first wants to ask, how do we view people? Like when we meet others, do we, do we view them through, through a lens that God would have us view them through or through standards of the world? That's what this whole first part is about. Uh, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Lord of glory. Um, he wants us to not be partial, but to, to look at other people as men and women, boys and girls created in the image of God, loved by our good Father. Um, not to treat one another differently or, or to look at folks through lenses of you know, worldly success and wealth, um, ambition, these kinds of things. Um, and look at this really practical illustration he gives. I'll just read it here. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He says, that's the way of the world. Uh, That's not the way that we should look at folks if the Spirit is at work in our lives. Um, Verse 5 said, God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Bishop N.T. Wright comments on this, the world is always assessing people sizing them up, putting them down, establishing a pecking order. And God, who sees and loves all alike, wants the church to reflect that generous universal love in how it behaves. That's what we're being called to. That's what he's wanting to see in our lives. Um, And just, I mean, kind of walk that through. What would that look like? Like, I don't think our greeters are here from this morning. We kind of had the open house and the coffee downstairs. But could you imagine if you're coming in and the greeters are just kind of sizing you up and down? And they're like, ah, that's some some Sunday best. That's some nice clothes. I bet they're going to put a lot in the offering plate. Um, Hey, let's give them the really comfy couch over there. (laughs) Here, you come sit right here. And then imagine if someone else came in and they kind of size them up and down. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. I don't see a lot happening with this person. Um, hey, you come sit. Uh, you know what? Well, here, we've got some that are directly in the sunlight. And so those are not optimal seats. Um, God bless you all. <laughs> um, you sit here and save the good seats for someone else. Or you know what? Like actually, um, you know, we're, we're just kind of getting back in here. And it's a little tight. It's a lot of people here. Um, what? We've got this nice slate floor over here. Uh, Maybe you could just sit over here and and leave the cushions uh, for somebody else. Um, I I think there's there's some exaggeration going on intentionally uh, from James. You could just imagine how how bad that would be uh, if we were to treat people in that way or size people up in that way. And James says, show no partiality. Um, We we don't want to look at folks through the lens uh, that the world looks at folks. 
Um, let me give you one more example that I found very interesting. Um, and it's, it's in regards to how we do mission work or missionary work. And uh, Joseph uh, D'Souza is the president of the All India Christian Council. And he talks about when uh, Western missionaries first came to India um, to, to bring the gospel, to bring the church. And as you know, there's always been lots of mistakes when that kind of stuff has happened. It's not, not a great picture. But the missionaries arrived and they said, ah, we know how we will reach India. We're going to go after the elite. And if we can reach the upper crust, the upper caste, the Brahmins, um, then we'll have like trickle-down evangelism. And it'll reach the whole country. Um, and it was a complete and utter failure. Um, it did not work. And part of it is God, I don't think, honored their impure motives. <laughs> um, instead, what they found out was that um, they now have changed the idea, and, and they are working with the, the lowest of the caste system there, the Dalit. Um, and they found them open and receptive to the gospel. And so they said, now we're working from the bottom up. Um, we're, we're asking, what's God's heart for those who are, who are on the bottom? And how can we come alongside uh, the work that God is already doing here? Uh, we want to shift our perspective, shift our focus. All right, let's talk about this next section. Uh, this starts in verse 14 about fruitful faith. Um, I will say this section runs to verse 26. And there was an option for us to read the entire chapter as our lesson. Um, and I just didn't think you wanted to do that today. Um, but I'm still going to use some of these verses. Uh, and I know, just real quick, I know some of you that makes you anxious because you can't actually see the verses. <laughs> They're not there in the bulletin. It's okay. Um, if, you, if you have a Bible, you can use it. If you have an app on your phone, um, you can use that. But I'm going to paint in pretty broad brushstrokes anyways uh, to look at this part of James 2. Because uh, all he's saying is that that example of giving people different seats, treating people differently, um, exposes a, a false faith, a fruitless faith, uh, worthless, dead, he basically says. Um, and then he kind of builds from that to go, what's, what's true faith? What, what, is, what is fruitful faith? What is living, loving faith? Again, not faith as an abstract concept, but faith in the Lord Jesus, faithfulness to him. And, and what he says throughout here is that our works don't save us, but the witness of the New Testament is that saved people uh, do works of mercy, naturally, that we're called to that kind of a posture. Um, actually, I think about Ephesians 2. You see this kind of imperfect balance. Because most of us fall off one side or the other. We're not balanced on this, right? We either are all about initial faith and, and we never do anything, um, or we're all about only doing all this work for God. Um, and we look down on what we view as kind of an immature faith. We're, we rarely hold these well in tension. Um, we rarely have gratitude for the Lord's work in our lives, and then out of that gratitude, do the work he has given us to do. Ephesians 2, it comes together. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus uh, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's how this comes together, that we're saved by grace, grace alone, for good works. The saving faith isn't the result of good works. It results in good works. That's, that's how these come together. Um, and I might say one other thing. I've just, I, was, I was thinking about this between services. Um, 
we all have different temperaments, right? Personality types, we probably uh, relate to God in different ways based on those types. And some of us, I think, are, treat, are tempted to treat God like a taskmaster. Like he just delegates and he gives us this to-do list and we're going to do it all right so that when the boss returns, we can say, look, we did great. Give us a gold star. I think instead, it's worth reflecting on any work that we do, um, we, we come alongside the Lord and the work that he's already doing. And so it's not delegation to do all this stuff. It's invitation and participation. We're invited to do this work, and we get to participate in the work that God is doing. Um, and it's something that can bring us joy in doing so. Um, it should be natural. And then the other thing, I just want to kind of hit a caveat. Um, this doesn't mean, like, I think this is a lot about our posture. And so when someone is in need and they need help, our natural posture should be uh, to see them as someone made the image of God. If we can help, to help. But this isn't always like a 100% success rate. Does that make sense? I'm like, there's going to be folks that we, we don't have the resources um, to assist. And God wants us to see them and pray for them and know them. Um, it doesn't mean that we should beat ourselves up with guilt if there's a situation we can't help out with. It's saying that our natural posture um, should be merciful and to seek to serve and to seek to love and to see uh, people as those made in the image of God. So James goes on in verse 14. This is what we have here. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Um, and James's clear answer is no. Um, and there's a little bit of detail work going on here. Um, when he says if someone says he has faith, uh, claims they have faith, uh, James actually isn't going to concede that they actually do. You know, he, he's saying that they think they have this, they probably don't. Uh, there's some of that kind of intricate work going on in this rhetoric. But they claim they have faith. He says that's false. Uh, it's clearly not biblical faith. So he gives another example, verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the good things needed for the body, what good is that? He says nothing. And just think about what that would be, that you're just kind of this patronizing head pat when someone actually needs some help, and you can probably help them. God says, what's going on in this person's life? James says, if we can help, we should. That should be the natural posture of a Christian. Verse 17, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What's he doing? He's asking us to actually be self-reflective. Um, to, to look and go, hey, do I have this living faith within? Am I naturally given um, to these works of mercy? What's my posture when someone needs something? Are they a bother? Are they a nuisance? Um, this is going off script a little bit. Um, I've been studying in the book of Ruth a lot lately. And it's interesting. In the book of Ruth, they've had this famine. It's terrible. Um, actually, the, a whole family has to leave Israel because the famine is so bad. And when they return, um, they, they come, and Ruth, who's this foreigner, um, she comes into the field of this man named Boaz, and she's gleaning on the margin. She's getting what she needs. Um, and a couple of interesting things there. First, um, that's this really cool way where God told his people, here's how you care for each other. 
Um, as you leave some of your land, you leave some of your crops so other people can get it if they need it. But here's what struck me by it, is that's hard enough to do anyways. To actually create margin to serve and help others. But Boaz does this coming out of a famine. And he still says, how can I have not just enough for me or hoard enough for me and mine, but create enough margin to serve my community and to serve those in need? Um, That's, I think, a a key question here is, do we have margin to do this Um, and to serve folks and to serve them well? All right, back to to James. Um, James is just encouraging us to be self-reflective. Um, he, he wants our, our, our faith, our, our walk with the Lord, not to be um, just this awareness of God, but an allegiance to God. Not just facts or factoids, but faithfulness and following. And he even has this great illustration. He goes, hey, even the demons can pass a theology test. He's asking, how is this being worked out in practical ways uh, in our lives? He wants us to assess if we have this living, vibrant, saving faith. Because again, back to the princess bride. According to James, biblical faith is a working faith. And if, if the idea of faith without works or someone having or validating their faith apart from works, James would look at that and say inconceivable. It doesn't make sense to him that you would have a Christian who's not naturally uh, serving and helping those in need. Uh, James would say that that nominal faith, it doesn't make a difference. If it doesn't show up in practical, ordinary holiness, then, well, we, not, we might need to revisit faith. <laughs> um, might need to look inside a little bit there. I think James would say if, if we claim to have faith and don't have love, well, he would look us right in the eye along with Jesus and the New Testament and, and church history and just say, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means if we claim to have that kind of faith. Again, don't get me wrong. The Reformation, I think, did some really important things. Uh, Martin Luther, for all of his flaws, did some really important things. Um, helped us understand how God works in salvation. Um, some of the nuance of that. But James isn't working out those nuances here. Uh, this is a pastor concerned with consistent Christian behavior. Um, and again, I don't think... it. You know, his goal in this is self-reflection. I should probably point that out. Like, I hope no one's gotten an elbow in the ribs during this sermon. (laughs) This is not an elbow someone else in the ribs kind of sermon. This is a, hey, let's take stock of my life. Let's see if this faith is being being worked out. What what are the gifts? uh, What is the work that God has given me to do? And, And am I doing that or am I just going through the motions? That's the crux of James 2. Am I doing this, or am I just going through the motions? A few last things before we close. Um, There's a New Testament scholar, Anglican theologian named Scott McKnight, wrote a commentary on the book of James, sums it up this way. It says, saving faith, then, is a trusting faith that flows into deeds of mercy. Non-saving faith is a, a purely intellectual faith without deeds of mercy. In this setting, James may distinguish faith from works, but he leaves no room for a saving faith that does not involve works. Faith finds its perfection and fulfillment in acts of mercy. That's what's going on here. I'll give you one uh, quote from last week, right as we close here. Um, 
Anyone here know the name Eugene Peterson? Presbyterian minister. Um, He's with the Lord now. Um, Wrote a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. Um, I'm not going to call it a translation because I'm too nerdy for that, but it's a beautiful paraphrase. Um, And what I found is if I'm working on a passage that I'm either struggling to understand because it's really dense, or maybe I'm struggling to understand because I'm so, it's too familiar. Like I've just read it so many times. Then I can look up what Eugene Peterson did in the message and just get a freshness. Um, It comes at me with a little different angle. And so in uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message, he has this line from James 1. I want to read it to you. It says, in simple humility, let our gardener, God, landscape you with the word, making a salvation garden of your life. That's this image of faith and works and the seed taking root and growing and flourishing and becoming fruitful. In simple humility, let our gardener, God, landscape you with the word, making a salvation garden of your life. That's the call from James 2, to to look to our salvation garden and see where weeds have grown, to see what needs to be pruned, to see what could be planted, to see what fruit is found. That's what we have in this passage. All right, let's pray together. Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft into our hearts the love of your name, increase in us true religion, nourish us with all goodness, and bring forth in us the fruit of good works. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.